I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 24. I'm going to read that this morning as we continue our study in the book of Acts. It says, And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. When he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews, throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Having, come, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Which, While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought, to, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say, that wrong, say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is re- with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul 
in prison. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that you, by the power of your spirit, through your word, would speak to us, that you would teach us the things that we need in order to love, serve, and worship you more and to live lives of holiness before you. I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, through your word, would do that work. Make us more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Uh, The vantage point, the vantage point from which you see the world can have a lasting impact on you. On our way to Seattle a couple weeks ago, as we were flying, just a few minutes from landing, my wife tapped me on the shoulder to show me what she was seeing outside of the window. And I, who am always mired in some book or praying to Jesus for a safe landing, given my fear of flying, reluctantly looked over. And seeing what my wife saw, I was astounded. The glory of God's creation in the towering mountains. It was a clear day, so the mountains were visible in all their beauty. And it was, an, it was impressive seeing them from that view. Now, I'm not a hiker, but I bet some of you are and have likely seen mountain ranges from the view of a hiker and have been even more struck from that vantage point. My point is that the view from which you see something can have a lasting impact on you and even shape your view of God's world. I came to tell you this morning, people of God, that you and I as Christians have a view of the world, not just in its physical beauty, but in its destiny, a view that no one else has. You see, brothers and sisters, we are those through faith in the resurrected Jesus who by the power of the Spirit are enabled to see the world through the lens of the resurrection. We, who through faith have come to believe in Jesus' resurrection, are now those who by the Spirit share in that resurrection life. As such, our eyes should be open to the world in ways those around us are only able to see as we testify to it through our words and our deeds about Christ, and as they trust in Him through the Spirit's work. The Apostle Paul, as he now marches from judge to judge, as our Lord did, hovering between the uncertainty of life in this world or death, does so as one whose eyes are now fully open to the truth of the resurrection. Paul unlike his accusers and unlike those who would stand as judge over him, knew the world's destiny. He knew where everything was headed. And so he repeats to Felix what he had tried to say to the council in the previous chapter. He says, but this I confess to you according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Indeed, he tells Felix a few verses later that if he had done anything wrong, it was to shout out in the council, it is is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. How can we who live in view of the resurrection, 
who know that this is where it is all headed, who know that in Christ the world will be made new. How can we do anything else but shout it out to the world around us? In that way, we are like my wife tapping me on the shoulder to see what she sees out the window, only we are tapping the world on the shoulder and saying, look, let me show you what we see. And Paul is doing this while he is in chains. You know why? It's because as believers, our physical location in this world may change, but it doesn't change our view. Our, our, our physical location in this world may change, but it does not change our view. They, 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 they can lock us up, but it doesn't change the view. They can dismiss us from the seats of power, but it does not change the view. They can take our goods, but it doesn't change the view. They can even take our individual lives, but it does not change the view. We are a people who share in the resurrection life of Jesus, a people who see the world from the vantage point of the resurrection, and as we bear witness for Jesus, we bear witness to Him from that resurrection view. So I just came to share with you a few, for a few moments what that resurrection view entails. What are the contours of that resurrection view, the shape of that resurrection view. And Paul actually answers this in a statement made in his conversation with Felix and his wife Drusilla. When speaking to them about faith in Jesus Christ, Luke says this, as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get opportunity, I will summon you. I want to tell you this morning that the shape of this resurrection view, it entails righteousness. It entails self-control. It entails the coming judgment. Indeed, as we read the story, all three of these are actually visible in the text as realities that Paul's accusers and judges are failing to see. In fact, as Paul speaks to Felix of these things, Felix is alarmed. And make no mistake, people of God. Our view of where it all is headed, a view rooted in the resurrection, will leave some folk around us alarmed. So what does this view of the resurrection entail? What are its shapes and its contours? Well, first of all, it is a view rooted in righteousness. When Paul spoke to Felix and Drusilla about the righteousness that is in keeping with faith in Jesus Christ, he spoke as one who was surrounded by unrighteousness. He had been the victim of his own countrymen's violence and lies. And though he had incited no riot nor violated any laws, he was arrested and brought before the tribune. The tribune, finding no cause against him, rather than letting him go and dealing with his accusers, decided instead, perhaps to impress his superiors for political gain, to pass him on to Felix. If this were not enough, the religious rulers, having failed to secure a verdict against Paul, upped their game and brought in a hired hand, one they believed could better argue their case before the governor. And Tertullus, it seems, Tertullus, it seems, was happy to oblige them, happy to use his verbal and legal skills to get the system to render an unjust verdict against an innocent man. I better be careful. I can get in trouble with this one. 
But this is how evil men and women committed to their own unrighteous agendas behave in this world. They use their skills, their influence, their power, their resources in disgraceful and underhanded ways to try and secure victories for themselves, no matter the cost, no matter the impact on those crushed by those victories. And if the religious leaders in Tertullus actions weren't enough to convince you, then just look at the actions of the one to whom Paul is speaking to about Christ, about the righteousness that faith in him produces. We read this in that last verse, verse 27, desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This was after seeking a bribe from Paul in which he had called Paul several times expecting to receive money from him. That's right. In addition to false charges, charges, by the way, that should have been, should not have even been entertained since those who claimed to be witnesses were not there to defend their charges against Paul. Paul has to deal with a judge looking for a bribe, a crooked judge. If Paul had been willing to play the world's game, to act from the view of the world, he could have been free. If he had been willing to embrace that worldly view where unrighteousness is praised, where lying becomes acceptable, where bribery secures favor, where crushing others for one's own success becomes acceptable, if he had been willing to take the world's view, he could have secured his freedom in this world. But it was the Apostle Paul himself who, when faced with another situation in which unrighteousness was advancing around him, threatening his own reputation in the church, wrote this, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, and why do we renounce those disgraceful and underhanded ways? We renounce them because from within the view of the resurrection, those unrighteous ways won't survive. From within the view of the resurrection, those unrighteous ways have a shelf life. We who have put our faith in Christ live in view of the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that everything that has to do with death has been conquered by Him, and we know that the day is coming where the ways of unrighteousness will be no more. And so in view of that truth, we are called to live our lives in this world as those bound by the power of the Spirit to walk in righteousness before God. Through faith in Christ, we ask the Spirit to give us power when we are tempted toward those disgraceful and underhanded ways of the world to resist them. We ask for the power instead to do what is right, even in a world where doing what is right is considered wrong. Paul would rather stay in prison than step outside of that resurrection view of the world that he now had through faith in Christ. What about you? What about me? Are we willing to stay committed to that resurrection view even if it costs us to do so? Are we committed by the Spirit to walking in the righteousness of that resurrection life we now have in Jesus Christ? The call for us brothers and sisters is to do like the Apostle Paul, to renounce the underhanded and disgraceful ways of the world 
to lay aside the cunning where we use our skills, our power, our resources to work unrighteousness for our own ends. Instead, we must commit ourselves to righteousness even when we are surrounded by unrighteousness. It is to do right, even if it costs us to do so. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the time is always right to do what is right. Yes, we want to see unrighteousness defeated, yet we must not give in to unrighteousness to secure that defeat. Paul refused to return his accusers' false charges with false charges of his own. He refused to return their violence with violence of his own. Some of you are in situations where you are being lied on. The view of that resurrection says you don't return that evil. Instead, you keep telling the truth. You keep speaking what you know to be right, even as your accusers keep giving themselves over to falsehood. Some of you have been threatened or have received violence at another's hand. Don't return that violence. Tell someone with the power to do something about it. Yet don't take vengeance into your own hands. Instead, pray for your enemy that the Lord will deliver them from their violence because as one who sees the world from the vantage point of the resurrection, you know where that violence is headed, ultimately toward the destruction of the one who is committed to it. Whatever unrighteousness may be around you, give yourself over to righteousness instead. For as the Scripture says, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. Amen, people of God. Righteousness, on the one hand. On the other hand, this view from the resurrection is shaped by self-control. When Paul spoke to Felix and Drusilla about faith in Christ, he spoke to them of the righteousness that is in keeping with that faith, but he also spoke to them about self-control. Let me ask you a question this morning. How long can you put up with mess? How long can you put up with mess? How long before you lose your temper? How long before love turns to hate? How long before prayer and petition for folk becomes judgment and condemnation of folk? I want to read <laughs> this verse to you again, verse 27. When two years had elapsed, verse 26, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. Imagine being left in prison, not because you had actually done the crime, not because the court had not yet gotten to your case. Imagine being left in prison innocent because the judge wanted to do a favor for the very people who had wrongly accused you and thrown you into prison. Imagine a system through its officers that colluded in your demise. Place the call of self-control in that context. You see, these exhortations in the Bible regarding how we are to live don't come to us in the abstract. 
They come to us during the often painful experiences of living life in this world. They come to us in the experiences of oppression and injustice, in the experience of conflict and discord, in the experience of problems and hardship, self-control, that ability to master our inner desires and emotions that often fuel our behavior is called for amid life's tribulations. It's called for in the context of trouble and conflict and hardship and difficulty. And it is only as we view ourselves and this world from the view of the resurrection that we, by the power of the Spirit, are unable to resist giving in to those evil desires and emotions that would actually consume us. Self-control doesn't mean being emotionless. It means learning to channel our emotions toward their proper end, toward godliness. Again, it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, let no one pull you so low as to hate them. You say, but, 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 but pastor, I don't know if I have that ability. I mean, it was good for Brother King, but I just can't do it. I can't control my temper. I feel at times that I just don't have the emotional fortitude to resist that rage, that need to get back at them. I just came to tell you that the Spirit of God is in you for that very purpose. You're right. You can't master your desires or your emotions on your own. Yet the Spirit of God is there to help you, to empower you in this. Don't let the word self in front of control cause you to believe that it's in you alone who will bring your desires and passions and emotions under control. It is only as you yield that self to the Spirit of the living God that those desires and passions and emotions will be brought under control. It is only as you trust in the one who raised Jesus from the dead that you will be able to rise from the death of those evil desires and passions and emotions that wage war against your soul. Paul wasn't willing himself through those two years in prison. He was living in the view of the resurrection and by the power of the Spirit, keeping his own heart under control to not give in to the evil desires, passions, and emotions that had been actually aimed at him by others. Self-control, brothers and sisters, requires yielding to the Spirit, and yielding requires humility. It requires the humility to recognize that I am not strong enough in myself to fight back those passions in me that wage war against my soul. Live long enough Live long enough and you will realize that there are some desires inside of you that require supernatural power to control. Live long enough, I'll say it again, and you will recognize that there are some desires and passions inside of you that will take the supernatural power of God to control. Some of us think we're nice. We think we are not susceptible to hate. It's just because we haven't met that person or persons who set themselves against us in hate who have decided to give themselves to our demise. Some of us think that we are compassionate. We think we love the poor until we become overwhelmed with their needs. Then compassion 
turns to disgust, weariness, and in some cases, despising of the very people we are called to care for. We need the Spirit to fight against those passions that wage war inside of us against our soul. For some of us, self-control will be in dealing with other passions like lust and greed and anger and the like. Whatever the passion, whatever the desire that is out of control, the Spirit is there to help you bring it under control. And since we are those who view the world from the resurrection, we must yield ourselves to the Spirit to enable us to give ourselves to controlling our passions and desires as we bear witness for Jesus in this world. A resurrection view is a view shaped by righteousness. It is a view shaped by self-control. Finally, it is a view, brothers and sisters, of the coming judgment. Don't miss the irony here. Paul was being judged by Felix. In fact, he was being judged by his own countrymen, Felix, and soon other leaders of the Roman state. It's no coincidence that in speaking about faith in Jesus, he speaks about the coming judgment. Indeed, he had told Felix in his defense of himself that he shared a hope with those who were accusing him of a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And that resurrection, the Scripture teaches us, will lead to a judgment before the judgment seat of Christ in which all will have to give an account for their lives in this world. Yes, even the one judging Paul would one day be standing in front of the judge of all the world to give an account for himself. You see, a resurrection view of the world reminds us that we all stand in the face of that coming day. And this, for the believer, provides us with comfort on two fronts. One, we have the confidence that because of our faith in Jesus, we are those who will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And this not because of us, but because of the blood of Jesus shed on our behalf. And on the other front, we are, con- we are comforted in knowing that the evil done in this world and those who give themselves over to it without repentance will be judged. And they may escape the judgment of this world, but they will not escape the judgment of Almighty God, no matter what their reputation is in the world, no matter how many statues are built in honor of them, no matter how long their family name may last, those bound over to evil who refuse to repent of it, but instead boastfully and arrogantly continue in that evil will have to stand before the judge of all the earth. The last word will not be rendered by them, it will be rendered by God. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead has guaranteed the verdict against evil and a verdict in favor of God's justice. All who trust in Christ are declared righteous and will be set free into their Lord's glory in eternity. But all who renounce Christ, continuing in their own sin and unrighteousness, will perish. Considering such a frightening truth, how can we who view the world from the vantage point of the resurrection not bear witness to the world that there is a judge, a judge over all the world? How can we not tell them that the judgment seats of this world 
don't render final verdicts. The judgment seats of this world don't render final verdicts. The judgment seats of this world do not render final verdicts. But there is a judgment seat that will. How can we not tell them that judgments rendered in this world that are not in keeping with the true judge's character and actions are seen by that judge and judged by that judge, that they should be careful in rendering verdicts not to do so in a way that frustrates justice or deprives the poor and needy of what is right, that perverts truth and crushes the innocent. How can we not tell them what Isaiah 40 declares? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its peoples are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. There is a judge over all the earth and that judge's judgments are just. And we who trust in Christ, we look ultimately to that judge to render just decisions in the here and now, but also in the world to come. And the call here, brothers and sisters, is to resist the lie, to resist the lie that final judgments are rendered by the judgment seats of this world. They are not. It is to remember that our view, the view from the resurrection tells us that God is King, that Jesus is Lord, that the Spirit is God. We are not ultimately appealing to men for justice in this life or counting on them for justice in the next. We are ultimately appealing to the judge of all the earth. And that doesn't mean we can't or shouldn't expect just judgments from the judgment seats of men. We should and we must appeal for such because these seats are still subject to God, whether they know it or not. However, we do not put our ultimate hope in those judgment seats. We put it in Almighty God. Such a truth and hope means that we do not despair when the judgment seats of men render unjust judgments. Rather, we turn our prayers to God, asking Him to do what those men too weak or too sinful won't do. And here's the thing we have that they don't. We got time. Here's the thing we have that they don't. We got time. You see, from the views of the resurrection, we know that we have eternity in front of us. An eternity that God has promised will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. An eternity in which everything unclean will find no place. We got time. So throw us in prison. We got time. Take our resources. We got time. Take our lives. We got time. The judge has already ruled in our favor. So we, who will, we will keep working for justice. We will keep appealing to the judge of all the earth to give it to us knowing that he will give it to us at points and times in this life and in the life to come. We got time. The view from the resurrection says we got time. And so we don't despair. We don't give up. We don't throw in the towel because from the view of the resurrection, we know that there is a judge and a judgment coming where the king will rule in favor of righteousness and truth. 
and what is good. Amen, people of God. Brothers and sisters, we who have faith in Jesus, we've been given a resurrection view of the world. Jesus got up out of the grave. How many of you believe it? You believe he got up out of the grave? You believe he's risen? You believe he's seated at the right hand of God the Father? You believe that this morning? Is that true? What well, can I tell you? That you, because of your faith in Jesus, you share in that resurrection. You view the world from a vantage point that no one else does because you, through faith in Jesus, will also share in his resurrection. And that resurrection view is shaped by righteousness and self-control and a hope in the coming judgment of our God. You've been given the best view in the house, brothers and sisters, <laughs> a resurrection view that is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen, people of God. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we have been given this view because you died. You gave your son who died on our behalf. But you didn't leave him in the grave, God. You, by the power of the Spirit, raised him from the dead. And now he is seated at your right hand. He is seated there while you make all your and our enemies a footstool for your feet. He is ruling and reigning even now, and the day is coming where everything unjust, evil, unrighteous will be rooted out of the world, and the world will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We give you praise that we are those who faith in Jesus, who share in that resurrection life. And for that reason, we have a view of the world that the world does not have. So I pray, as we bear testimony about Jesus in this world, give us the ability to bear testimony from that resurrection view by doing righteousness ourselves, by yielding to the Spirit and humility to control our passions and desires and emotions and channel them toward their proper end, which is godliness, and give us the ability to hope, even in the midst of the unjust verdicts of this world, to trust in the coming day where you will judge the earth and set everything right. Father, I pray that your people would be infused with hope that comes from knowing that they are a people of resurrection. I pray this and ask this for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen.